Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's great to see you this morning. The Sunday after Easter typically is kind of a, a what next Sunday. Uh, so like in church, oftentimes the pastor will take vacation day because um, they have a youth pastor who's willing to speak. I don't have a youth pastor who's willing to speak. He's probably the best youth pastor I've ever met in my life, but he refuses to come on the stage. Julian, calling you out. Uh, but often it's a question of what's next. And so sometimes for churches, it's figuring out, okay, what do we do after Easter? We, we welcome so many people. We're so grateful to see them. Uh, some of you were new last week. You came for the first time. Some of you are new this week. You're coming for the first time again. Uh, and we're grateful for that. And so what do you do uh, with the Sunday after Easter? And I think it's a question that the church wrestled with as well. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Easter, uh, if we celebrated it here last week, is that we believe and we know to be true that Jesus died on the cross and then rose again, and he died for our sins, the sins of the world, so there's a forgiveness and there is a reconciliation with God that occurs, and because that reconciliation occurs, we can be in relationship with God, the creator of the universe, in a way that maybe we couldn't before, and so... We have this celebration in Easter that we reflect on that and we appreciate that and we worship God because of that and we sing the songs we sang because of it. And then for the early church, they experienced this. You know, they, many of them fled at the crucifixion. They, they left Jesus while he died. But when they learned of his resurrection, they saw Jesus, the scriptures tell us. John's gospel is especially interesting because Peter and John go running to the tomb to see Jesus' empty tomb, to know that he's risen again. But then what Peter does, so he knows that this has happened, and then he just goes back to work. Uh, so his question of what next, it was like, okay, life goes back to normal. What, whatever happened before goes back to normal. And then Jesus has this encounter at the end of John's gospel with Peter on a beach where he serves them breakfast, and he tells them, hey, you've got a job to do. Go love me and feed my people, serve them. And then the story changes. So what's next becomes the church starts. And there's this movement, if we read the book of Acts, of how God is working and how people are experiencing God because of Easter. That's the question of what's next, is there's a movement of God and God is present in people's lives in a way that he couldn't be before. And so we have to look through that lens of reality, that the story of Scripture paints this picture that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, because of that, we are made right with God, we are reconciled with God, and we have an opportunity to experience life in its fullness because of him. And so we read the story of Scripture and see how this was all painted out for us. Jesus was with them for 40 days after he rose again, and then he was gone again, and then the church moves, and the Holy Spirit is present with the people. For us, we enter into that story as well. For wherever you find yourself on your own journey of spirituality, of trying to figure out what you believe, you are given the same opportunity that those early followers of Jesus were to know that the resurrection is true, and that because of that, God has made a way for you to be in relationship with him. And because of that relationship, the Holy Spirit is with you always, and you can be God in your life all the time. So how do we experience God? That's the question we're going to be exploring today and for the next, well, five weeks after this. 
What does it mean to experience God? God is present in our lives through the Holy Spirit, and what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we know he's there? Is there anything we do that prevents this experience? Maybe you're sitting there right now and you're thinking, I don't feel like this is true. Is it about feeling, or is it about embracing something we know is true and then living like it? So we're going to be exploring that for the next few weeks. And when we talk about this idea of experiencing God, a lot of us have different ideas of what that looks like or how, how it comes about, what our own experience might be. And for many of us, we have these ideas that it has to be this grand thing that's going to happen, that there's going to be these amazing events that occur, and that's how we know that we are experiencing God in our midst. We look at the story of Moses in Exodus, that God raised up Moses to lead his people out of slavery. And we look at Exodus chapter 3, in verse 1, it says this. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And then there was an angel of the Lord that appeared to him, in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. It did not burn up. When we think about experiencing God, we're thinking sometimes something like this. It's got to be this crazy, miraculous event like Moses had. That's how we know we're experiencing God. So if we see the angel of the Lord, which means the presence of God, that's the way Scripture talks about it, in a bush and it's burning and it's not burning up, then we know we're experiencing God. We go up on a mountain and we experience God. This is sometimes the idea that we have of what experiencing God means. What it means to live a life where we know God is present. We're looking for those miraculous moments that seem inexplicable. But the truth is, it's incredibly more ordinary than that. In fact, you probably will never see a bush that does not burn while it's on fire. But it doesn't mean that God is any less present with you in your daily life. In fact, I think what the reality is, is that it's more like the experience that the early followers of Jesus had. In John's Gospel, in John chapter 1, there's the first words that Jesus ends up saying are incredibly interesting. In John 1 verse 35 It happens like this. It says, The next day John, uh, who's John the Baptist, was there again with his two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Jesus' first words in John's gospel are, What do you want? And come and see. I want to encourage you, when we think about experiencing God, to keep these two first question and second statement in mind. What do you want? And come and see. The early followers of Jesus experienced God daily in their walk with Jesus. God was present in the person of Jesus. God in the flesh is what we believe in the Christian faith. 
And because of that, because of those experiences, they saw the extraordinary, but also the incredibly ordinary of just going to see where he was staying. Yet God was present, and they continued to experience him nonetheless. The idea of experiencing God is to ask ourselves the question, well, what do we want? What is it that we want? And then let's see what God is doing. Reality is that God is at work. God is busy in this world in ways we don't fully understand sometimes. And sometimes it's just a matter of us to go, okay, let's go see what's happening. A lot of the ideas for this series are based from a book that was written about 30 years ago called Experiencing God. And while it's not directly related to the book, uh, it definitely inspired me as I was reading it again last year for the maybe fifth time in my life. And it reminded me of some of the things that I realized that I can forget so easily, such as I don't need to look for a burning bush, but I need to go and see what Jesus is doing when I want to experience God. And so sometimes our expectation needs to change. So the question of what do we want maybe has to be a question of our expectation. And come and see is the reality of what God could be doing and maybe Maybe our expectation has been changing our vision a little bit, and we've been missing out. To experience God in your life is to know that God is always at work, whether you know it or not. And to know that God is always at work is to strive to see what he is doing and exploring that. So how do we experience God? How do we come to know that he is at work and that even in the ordinary things we see around us, just as Gord asked that question today, where do you see God at work? Just in the ordinary things, how do we know it's him? I want to explore a passage in Scripture. It's a lengthy one from the book of Romans. The book of Romans was a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And if you know the story of the Apostle Paul, he was someone who was a persecutor of the church And then he encountered Jesus through a vision as he was going to persecute the church. And he encountered Jesus. He went blind. And then God led him on this journey where he moved from being a persecutor to a church planter to an encourager to to someone who, who leads and led the church. And so he wrote a lot of the New Testament because he was writing letters to churches to try and get them to figure out what does this mean that, you know, Jesus died and rose again. How do we live now? You know, it's the what next question. And this letter that he wrote to the church in Rome was a church that he had not yet visited. So somebody that he taught once upon a time planted this church, and he had not yet been there. But he wanted to make sure that they were on the right path, that they understood, again, what this question is, what does it mean to experience God in your life, and what is it that we believe about all these things? And so as he's writing this letter, he's writing into this church that's in a very interesting culture of their time. They were a church, and and many churches and just the culture in general were very uh, religiously synchronistic. And so they would adopt different beliefs and kind of meld them all together. And so sometimes the things that they would believe were influenced by other religions and not really by the teachings of Jesus. And this was part of the Roman culture of the time, and so it just kind of naturally happened that it was in the church. And sadly, it's something that still happens a lot in the church. Sometimes what we believe is influenced by other things and not actually Scripture. 
And so that's why we strive to always point to Scripture. It was also written within a culture that was based around shame and honor. Uh, a lot, like a lot of more Eastern cultures still today, where it's around do you bring shame or honor to your family? It was something that people had to wrestle with, because when they would do something wrong, they would bring shame. And as they brought shame, they would be excluded from their community. And so these cultural realities are part of what Paul is writing into when he writes this book of Romans. He wants them to understand the difference Jesus makes, and he wants them to understand culturally what they're dealing with and why they need to pay attention to it. So Romans chapter 8, which is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, starts off like this. In verse 1, therefore, one of the things about Scripture is you need to know this, okay? Anytime there's a therefore, there was a something before that you need to pay attention to. It's a what for before. And so when Paul writes therefore, and if you read the book of Romans, he says it 15 times. 15 times he's going to say therefore. And he says that because he wants you to know what he said just before it. And he's going to explain why just before it is important and the difference that Jesus makes in that context. Just before it, in the chapters just before, Paul is expressing how sometimes he knows the right thing to do and he doesn't do it. Can you relate to that at all? Sometimes he knows what's best and he chooses what's worst. He doesn't want to do it, but he does. Sometimes he desires to do the right thing, but that desire doesn't motivate him enough to actually do it. And he says that in the context of what his upbringing is, his religious upbringing, he had the law. The law is what we understand in the Old Testament as God's instructions on how at that time, this is how God is working to reconcile people, to recognize that they need God in their lives. And he said, if you tried to follow all the law, what ends up happening is you want to do good, but guess what? You just bring shame on yourself because you can never do it. No matter how hard you try on your own to do everything right, you will fail. Or you'll lie to yourself and say, yeah, I did it. Paul's letter to this church in Rome is to say, There is a law, there is an instruction from God of how we should behave, and if your idea is that you can earn good standing with God because you did all the right things, you are sorely mistaken, because you'll never be able to do all the right things. If anything, it'll make you aware of how much of a failure you really are. That's before the therefore. Then he says, therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because of its weakness weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but
but according to the Spirit. Just before the therefore, he says, you know what? You can never measure up. You are condemned. No matter how hard you try, you can never be absolutely perfect. None of us can on your own. But then he says, therefore, this is your reality. But in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're not condemned. In Christ, what the law, what the instruction of like, these are all the things you have to do to be right with God, could not do because we can never measure up to it. Jesus did on the cross. Jesus died and rose again for this. You who are in Christ, no matter what mistake you have done, that's not being held against you right now. When you find yourself following Christ, submitting to him as Lord, believing in his death and resurrection, doesn't matter what the past looked like, there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's it. That's it. And he uses some amazing words to say this. He says, you know, through, the, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life is set you free from the law of sin and death. So the law, which was not a bad thing, actually led you to the wrong things. And the one that's really at work in you is the Spirit. Paul uses the word uh, sometimes the Spirit of God or, or Spirit of Christ sometimes, but he's meaning the Holy Spirit. That God is in you, with you, around you, present. And so he contrasts, too, that there's no condemnation in you who are in Christ to that Jesus condemned sin and death for what he did. When we enter into a relationship with God, an understanding of who Jesus is, what he did, we can be embracing this reality that shame doesn't need to have any strength over us. That anything you've done, and maybe people have brought it up over and over again, doesn't need to be your story anymore. doesn't need to be what defines you. Rather, it's Christ who defines you. That no matter where you've been, no matter what's happened to you, no matter what people say about you, those things, though they play a role and they've brought you to where you are, don't have to be all you are. That it's Christ in you, through you, by the power of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. So he continues and says, Those who live according to the flesh... Have set their mind, have, have their mind set on what flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. As he's continuing to draw this contrast of what it means to be in the life with Jesus, the contrast is what does the life without Jesus look like? Will you stay in the flesh? The word that gets used is sarks in Greek. And it really just means your humanness, your skin. 
Paul uses different words for flesh, and sometimes it means different things, but he's really just saying you just stay in your humanness. You just fulfill every little desire you have that might not be the best thing for you, but it doesn't really matter because you just go by impulse. You might want to do right, but you won't do right. And you just stay in it. He says that leads to death. There's no way around it. But a life in the Spirit is life in its fullness. A life in Jesus is so much more. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. As Paul is continuing to try and outline this, like this is the contrast. This is the now what? This is what the life after Jesus' death and resurrection, if you believe it, looks like. There's either life in the flesh or life in the Spirit. Life in the Spirit brings more life. It brings goodness. It brings joy into your life. Life in the flesh might be a momentary indulgence that you think this feels good, but it doesn't actually get you where you want to go, and it's going to lead to death. And you can either define yourself by understanding that who Jesus is, that he came as God in the flesh, he died for your sins, that he reconciled you with God, and you can be known by him, by name, that you can be that person, or you can just keep going the way you did. And eventually, just leads to death. As Paul is contrasting that, he's inviting us into this life to say, hey, there could be no condemnation for you. You could experience God in your life in the Spirit's presence. Therefore, brothers and sisters, now because of all this, remember, so therefore, it's what he said just before this, because of what Christ has done, because of this reality that there's no condemnation if you're in Christ, because if you live by the flesh, it just leads to death, because if you live by the Spirit, it leads to life. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you will live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, because heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. Paul changes what this all means for us. He uses a language of adoption. He says, when you understand what Jesus did, when you believe it, when you submit to it, when you believe Jesus is Lord, you don't live by the flesh, you live by the Spirit. You are adopted. 
And we can think of adoption. Some of us have adopted, some of us have been adopted, and we know that we're welcomed into a family. In the reality of the first century world, in the Roman world, when you were adopted into a family, it's the same rights and privileges that a biological child would have. So if you were adopted by the emperor, which has happened in the past, you can become the emperor, which is what the difference makes. You are a son or daughter. You are adopted into God's family. You are God's children. No matter what you've done, what you believed about yourself, what other people have said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you are adopted into God's family. Your identity is that you are a child of God. And because of that, you live by the Spirit, and you can experience God if you choose to do that daily. If we want to experience God in our life, there is something that prevents it, and that is what Paul outlines here and calls the flesh. If you want to experience God and all you do is whatever feels good in a moment, you will be moving yourself further and further away from God. If you want to experience God and you say, hey, I don't really like what the Bible says, so I'm going to ignore it, you'll move yourself further and further away from God. You will not experience God. To experience God is to know that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that you were adopted into his family, and by the power of the Spirit, you choose to put your mind on the things of the Spirit and choose to follow, and you experience God. So how do we experience God? That's the question of it all. You can prevent yourself, or you can ask yourself, how do you experience him, and what do we need to do to make that happen? I want to give you some suggestions. Suggestions that I believe are rooted in this scripture and are rooted in the fullness of scripture. One is that, uh, it's going to come up later in Romans 12.12, is that part of experiencing God is renewing our minds. Romans 12.12 says, uh, Romans 12.2, sorry, says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your good and pleasing act of worship. In so doing, what happens is you renew your mind and you can test God's good, perfect, and pleasing will. You can know what God asks of you. What does it mean to renew your mind? It means to start rethinking things. Your brain is a miraculous blob of jello that I have no idea how it works, but it does. And you can rewire it. Maybe your thoughts have always led yourself to the flesh, meaning whatever my impulses are, maybe it's pornography, maybe it's violent movies, maybe it's whatever it might be, bad relationships or just self selfish desires. You can start renewing your mind by going, I'm not going to think about that. Apostle Paul in other chapters of Scripture will say, take every thought captive. So you go, I will not let this be my flesh that leads this conversation with my brain. You choose to do that. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, you can be renewed when you offer yourself to God. Renew our minds. Also, we have to surrender to the Spirit's leading. This is a big part of it. And I think it's the hardest one, to be honest. It's one thing to go, okay, I'm going to change my thought patterns. I'm going to physically do everything I can to not think or watch or embrace certain things that I know are not healthy for me. It's a lot harder 
to surrender in general, but surrender to the Spirit. To go, okay, God, what are you inviting me to participate in? What does it look like for me to follow you? What does it look like to embrace a life that says it's not about my desires, it's about what God is doing? Surrendering to the Spirit. Also, we need to practice self-control. This is one of the things Apostle Paul says it's part of the fruit of the Spirit, it's part of what God does in us, but we also need to practice self-control. If we're consistently giving in to our impulses, it's very hard to be experiencing what God is doing because we're just trying to satisfy ourselves. In self-control, we often can think of it like, okay, well, maybe I won't eat all of the ice cream, I'll just eat half a tub of ice cream. We think of that as self-control. But it's so much more. Self-control has to do with renewing our mind and surrendering to the Spirit. To go, okay, I'm not going to do what I want to do in this moment because I think that it's not the best thing in this moment. It means sometimes catching yourself when you want to think or say something that is really not a blessing to others or to yourself. It means catching yourself when you start to condemn yourself. When Paul says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, it's you ignoring that and saying, I'm pretty bad, God. Self-control involves all of that. And it is a discipline that we have to practice. It's something that God will work in our lives too, but we have to choose to practice it. And also, I think we also need to embrace community. One of the biggest mistakes that I've felt for a long time, and some of you know it to be true, is that we do things by ourselves. And we don't ask for help. And not even just ask for help, but we don't do it in community. This is very contrary to the words of Scripture, but it's very North American. And so maybe if you come from a different culture, you're used to the idea of having people around and talking about things and working through things. But in Canada and the U.S., it's very typical that you do it alone. And if you don't do it alone, you're weak. This is not the way of Scripture. This is not the way of God. We do it in community. That's what the church is. That's what your small groups are. That's what your volunteer experiences are. If you desire to experience God, you do it in community. You don't go be like Moses and try to find a mountain where God is. There's nothing wrong with that because sometimes you need to go on a mountain to think. But really, you experience God with each other. You come and see where Jesus is together. My desire for you is that you live a life of experiencing God. That you choose to embrace the truth that you are adopted into God's family, that you are a child of God, that no matter what you've done or what's been done to you or what people have said or what you say about yourself, that's not who you are. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and that you embrace and choose to be in Christ Jesus. And that when you choose to do that, you will live a life of experiencing God as you submit to the Spirit and choose to follow him even when it seems like it doesn't make sense to you because you've surrendered and he's in charge. That's my prayer for you. And if you desire to experience God, renew your mind, spend time in Scripture, meditate, Focus on the good, not always the negative. 
Surrender to the work of the Spirit. Where do you see God working? What do you see the invitations being? And adjust your life to it. Practice self-control. Choose when you know what is right or wrong or best. And embrace community. Allow others to help you to do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who invites you to be in relationship with you. And in that relationship, we are experiencing you. Uh, and sometimes it might seem like it is, it is this miraculous event where it doesn't make sense, but ever so often we need to remind ourselves that really, God, an experience with you is to say, where are you going, Jesus? And then go and see. I pray that we learn to experience you always, because Holy Spirit, you are with us. Wherever we find ourselves on this journey with you, maybe we're not sure what we believe yet. Maybe we've just come here for the first time or one of the first times. You're still working around us. And I pray that we can have our hearts and our minds just open to whatever it might be that you have, whatever you are inviting us to. I pray we, by your grace, can know that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus, that you have paid the penalty of sin, and that you invite us to know that we are your children, to find our identity in you and embrace a life of the Spirit. Help us to experience you daily. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.